Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, that doesn't even cover the issue on broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, Eden Henneman with you for this week's episode of Countrywide. I'll be with you for the next half hour as we take a look back at what made news in regional Australia this past week. Well, coming up... Could the oil-rich Gulf states of the Middle East be Australia's next golden export opportunity? Australia already exports to a number of Muslim-majority countries like Indonesia, um, Singapore, Malaysia. Uh, We have a lot of Muslim consumers in the US that are buying our product. But we have this huge market in the GCC that's waiting for for our products. And later in the program, we'll hear about a two-year-old ewe supermum in Western Victoria who recently gave birth to five healthy lambs. Over in the back corner, there was a, a ewe giving birth. I waited there and there was one, two, three, four, five come out. They all looked healthy, so I left them. The next morning I went back and she's up and going and feeding them all and they're all tacking along behind her. Well, that coming up, but first. Trade tensions with China have left the federal government scrambling to strike up new trade deals. The most recent deal has been with the UK, But some exporters say the oil-rich Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates should be the next priority. John Daly has the story. China's growing middle class has long been the golden goose for agricultural exports. With that trade relationship on the rocks, exporters say the oil-rich Gulf states of the Middle East could be Australia's next golden opportunity. Well, it's up to, I guess, exporters like myself, our peak industry bodies, to take the opportunity to speak to ministers about the importance of the GCC region, the Middle East, but more importantly, uh, Muslim consumers around the world. So Australia already exports to a number of Muslim-majority countries like Indonesia, um, Singapore, Malaysia. Uh, We have a lot of Muslim consumers in the US that are buying our product, but we have this huge market in the GCC that's waiting for, for our products. That's Delene Ray, who's a Queensland-based exporter of organic beef. The Gulf Cooperation Council is an economic and political union between Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Oman, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar and Kuwait. And its leaders met in January and there the council reiterated its interest in a free trade deal with Australia. There's a win-win opportunity for not only um, Australian exporters to export into the region, but also for um, wealth um, and investment to come from the GCC into Australian agriculture and our industry more broadly. So why are the opulent bazaars of Arabia such an attractive target? Well, for starters, they're super rich and have a middle class that's rising though not as quickly as China's. The Gulf states have a collective GDP of 1.6 trillion US dollars and command some of the world's biggest sovereign wealth funds. Simon Harrison is a director of the Australian Gulf States Group and he says it's a trading relationship that Australia has put on the back burner for far too long. They've been looking to Australia for years, quite frankly. We had a Senate committee going back five years ago where all the Arab ambassadors attended and said, 
to a person that um, the door's open for the Gulf. Why are you not walking through? So they've been asking and asking. Um, and so the conversations that we've been having, even during this COVID period, uh, have been about how can we get engaged with Australia? What do we need to do? Where's the entry points? And similarly, being contacted now by a lot of corporates across Australia, particularly in farming and agribusiness, as to how they can capture some of those funds and work in joint ventures with the Middle East. So the, the fault lines that have emerged between Australia and China in recent times, do you think that that has accelerated the interest it's had to, and we expected that it would. And we've been saying this for a few years without being doomsayers, that we thought that there was going to be a time when this all eggs in one basket was going to cause us a major problem. Uh, I've done a number of, uh, at Australia Gulf States Group, I've done a number of reports now for various economic development agencies in Australia looking at how they can now pivot to the Middle East since December. So there's a serious... Uh, flow of attention there that's not yet come to the surface. We've been paddling like ducks under the surface to try and get the Middle East profile over and get people to understand it. Uh, And I think we're getting there now, but I think China and the issues with China have certainly played to that, definitely. It's important to note that trade with the Gulf states already happens. In 2019-20, Australian exports there were worth $6.5 billion and the big ticket items were chilled meat and wheat. More recently, Saudi Arabia has become the biggest customer for Australian barley that was, of course, turfed out of China with an 80% tariff. Grain Growers Chair Brett Hosking says it's a market the industry will try and keep on the right side from now on. Look, they're an old friend, so they're a market that we've serviced before in the past and, and to be able to re- reopen that market, to be able to, um, or even possibly grow that market, it's one that we've been servicing continually but not to the same extent, so... Getting back into that market, reintroducing ourselves to kind of old friends and being able to expand that market and grow it has been really important and and has made a huge difference to our growers in in the the years we've had. And is that like a stopgap measure from the industry's perspective or is that a relationship that you're now going to look to show a bit of loyalty to? Yeah, look, it's certainly one that, um, you know, they're going to continue to be a volume buyer of Australian barley, um, so it's one that will continue to service and, and you know look after and build stronger and stronger relationships with where we can. There are still some trade barriers, though. There's no free trade agreement with the Gulf states, though there has been negotiations going back as far as 2007. OBE Organic Managing Director Delene Ray says an FTA with the Gulf would be a great thing for exporters like her. I would encourage um, our Prime Minister and ministers over the next decade to, to congratulate, pat ourselves on the back for the work we're doing in the UK, but let's look forward to the other markets around the world like the GCC in the Middle East uh, and other markets in Southeast Asia, and let's continue to negotiate the very, pos- very best trading con- conditions for exporters like ourselves. Queensland beef exporter Daylene Ray, ending that story from John Daly. On the export opportunity and potential for a free trade deal with the oil-rich Gulf states. You can read more on that story if you head to the ABC Rural website. Now turning your attention to dairy. Well, a report out this week suggests most Australian dairy farmers expect to turn a profit this year. You might have heard a bit about what's contributing to this recently. There's some strong milk prices out for the new season... But despite good operating conditions, the number of farmers leaving dairy continues to weigh down any increase in production. It's forecast to grow by 2% at best. For more, Peter Somerville spoke with Sophia Omstead, a senior industry analyst at Dairy Australia. 
88% of farm businesses across the country are anticipating making an operating profit in 2020-21. That's the highest number we've had since we started uh, reporting on tracking this measurement. Why is that? And uh, over what period of time are we talking here? When did you start tracking it? So profit expectation, we started tracking in 2014. So this is the highest number at 88% since that time. Uh, the key reason for this turnaround has really been in that improvement in operating conditions at the farm gate and improvement in seasonal conditions, easing of input costs, as well as relatively strong farm gate note price throughout this season, as well as a higher one head, um, looking heading into next year as well. And uh, some pretty promising milk prices ahead for farmers. How is that weighing on things? Yeah, that, that's it. Uh, opening prices for next season are, are mostly tracking in at higher compared to where they've been this year. And that's really been supported by that ongoing fairly favourable global market fundamentals, as well as robust demand for dairy here in Australia. Uh, but despite all of this, it seems production is still essentially stalled. Yes, so we expect fairly modest result overall for this current season we're in. We expect it to wind up the year fairly stable compared to last year. And a key reason for that being the fact that we do have a small national dairy herd after several years of, of heavy culling uh, with really challenging conditions leading up to those decisions. We also know that at the moment, really strong land prices are encouraging some farm exits in combination with high beef prices. And we still have the challenge as most agricultural industries does at the moment related to labour. Is that concerning that everything's looking so rosy yet we can't really produce that much more milk? Uh, it's, it's obviously for us the key uh, is profitability at the farm gate. So the result that 88% of farm businesses are expecting to make a profit this year is really a big key indicator for us and something we're feeling very positive about. We are also thinking that uh, that we might see a potential increase in milk production next season. Our initial forecast is zero to two percent growth relative to the current season we're in, um, as these favourable conditions really allow farmers to continue to take advantage of the improved operating conditions they're in. You mentioned that farm exits are slowing production. Do you have any idea just how many people have exited the industry? Well, we're still waiting for the final data to come through that we get from different state dairy authorities. We do have some indications there that is um, probably slightly more than the norm, which has been around 3 to 4% farm exits per year. But the final numbers will come through around September. Why are they leaving? What are they, what are they going to? Well, there, there seems to be slightly more options for farmers at the moment uh, compared to during the challenging years. For example, there are buyers of land uh, across the country, which means that land values have gone up. There's also really high beef prices, which means that there is an, an opportunity to exit now and bring retirement decisions forward if you want to. The high beef prices have also encouraged some farmers to diverse into 
beef production, especially as the lack of available workers in the dairy sector really ha has provided a lot of challenges to produce milk. Yeah, how big a problem is that uh, labour shortage for dairy? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Uh, in our National Dairy Farmers Survey, uh, we know that half of all farmers that have um, herd, dairy herds with more than 500 cows think that labour is one of the key challenges for the future. And we know it's impacting dairy operations across all states and regions in Australia. Uh, looking outside Australia, beyond our farm gates, uh, what's happening globally? Well, globally, milk supply has continued to grow as it has for most parts of the last year, but it's a growing at a quite stable rate. And so far, demand is really able to keep up and absorb that additional milk produced and underpin current commodity prices. I think one of, of the, whilst Global market fundamentals are quite supportive. A key challenge for anyone exporting at the moment remains related to freight challenges. There continues to be a real crunch and lack of available shipping containers. So for anyone exporting dairy products overseas, that it remains a key challenge and that issue doesn't look to be resolved anytime soon. Dairy Australia's Senior Industry Analyst, Sophia Olmsted, speaking there with Peter Somerville. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Moving now from land to offshore, the federal government has ambitious plans to double the aquaculture industry in the next decade. But how exactly will that be achieved? There's already a number of fish farms dotting the Tasmanian coast, so could new farms be built further out into the ocean? Could offshore fish farming be the future? Lachlan Bennett has a story. Imagine you're out in the middle of the ocean and somehow surviving those rough waves and currents is a massive fish farm. That could be the future of the aquaculture industry. Big offshore farms far from the sheltered waters of the coast. Wayne Hutchinson from the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation explains. It's a very interesting area of development around the world at the moment. It would look like uh, large sea cage systems built using sort of offshore oil and gas type engineering. There's an amazing amount of work happening in Norway at the moment. Uh, they're trying to move a lot of their um, salmon production offshore. But we have a, a target of growing our salmon industry. Their target is going from 1.5 million tonnes a year to 5 million tonnes a year. So um, it sort of dwarfs our salmon industry in Tasmania. But, you know, so they're systems that are, are big um, offshore. They hold large amounts of fish, so there's got to be these um, efficiencies of scale. So they're trying, uh, because, yeah, there's, there's a different level of technology going to be required, and they are being developed. As we say in our submission, you know, like we can be a fast follower in all of these technologies, so that's happening overseas. Um, and, you know, things like the initiatives like the Blue Economy CRC are, are looking at that. But there's a regulatory issue with that. It's allowing aquaculture 
to occur in Commonwealth waters is is that's still unresolved. Uh, the policy and regulation around allowing that to occur. But if aquaculture was permitted in Commonwealth waters, Dr. Patrick Hone from the FRDC said there would be many possibilities. We could have massive seaweed rafts out there, which would be blue carbon. We could have fin fish. We could have oysters out there. It could be anything. Yeah. Uh, and the structures could look like a really, really big ship, mm. which lets water through it. Or it could be big cages that sink down underneath the water and then rise up. There's so much technology out there. And we're talking about cages that you can put like six MCGs in. These are not small cages. And one of the things people don't realise is that between Norway and us, we have the best offshore engineering people in the world. What we did off the northwest shelf put this amazing engineering capacity so we can leverage our engineers. Mm. It's just phenomenal. And so that Norway is very cognizant of that, that we have these engineers so we can take something to the table. While offshore fish farms may be the future, some Tasmanians would prefer if they stayed closer to home. Many of those who are concerned about the environmental impact of aquaculture think that new farms should be located on land in purpose-built facilities. Dr Patrick Hone explains whether these would be economically feasible. It depends on your market share. If you're trying to produce a boutique low-volume product and you're getting a really high value, at the moment you can build a land-based structure. It's 41 degrees south, they do us like a smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so you you could do that. As soon as you're trying to compete, and this is where Tasso, Hewan and Petuna now, which is everyday seafood, you know, salmon all the time, volume, there's a price point. Mm. At the moment, there's no way you can do that onshore and probably nowhere in the foreseeable future with our technology you can do it. The energy cost, the land cost, the water cost are just not feasible. The best we can do at the moment is the merging of the two technologies, which is like Hume with the super smoke technology, grow them as big as you can before you move them. Because the ocean asset at the moment is really important. You want to maximise your ocean asset. But at the moment, the technology platform for salmon farming in Tasmania is not suitable for growing 100% onshore. What is that? What about barramundi, for example? So if, as long as barramundi stays at a high price point, it can. But you would note that Morris Booser and, and the mainstream guys have now bought uh, a farm in northern Queensland to offset the risk as barramundi prices might uh, become more mainstream, let's say. And that's a bit of a pun on their name, but... And so they've now bought a pond system in Queensland. Okay. Uh, because at some point, barramundi is going to go from you know, 10,000 tonnes, 20,000, 30, a bit like salmon, and the price point will go down. Mm. And therefore, they will need a more competitive solution. Managing Director of the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation, Dr Patrick Hone, speaking about onshore and offshore fish farms. You also heard from Wayne Hutchinson, who was speaking as a part of the House Agriculture and Water Resource Committee. Now, when it comes to skills we've lost over time, wool spinning may not spring to mind immediately. But at 86 years old, Eileen Douglas is keeping it alive. She started way back in 1973, turning the family fleeces into yarn. Peter Somerville visited Benambra in the Victorian high country to see how it's done. Next one. At her home in the hills of Benambra in the picturesque Victorian high country, 86-year-old Eileen Douglas is sitting at her spinning wheel, turning the family fleece into yarn. And she's been doing it for decades. 
I like the feel of wool, always have. I can nearly always tell clothing if it's got synthetic in it. And I just like the feel of wool and I just thought, well, we've got wool, I'll do that. Eileen doesn't just spin the wool, she dyes it too, placing gum leaves and other plants into a boiling pot of water on a camp stove on her back veranda, stirring the wool to get the colour just right. And while the main shops are a good couple of hours down the road, she doesn't have to travel too far to source her fleece. There's a long line of wool growers in the family happy to oblige. Yeah, I didn't use merinos. I bought it stuff off me brothers, <laughs> I'd say. Well, Ronnie gave me some. He had some English, I don't know what his sheep were, I can't remember now. Um, and then when Roger came along with his, I got some off him and now Chris is there and I got some off Kenny and now Chris is there in Kenny's place, so I'll ask Chris if I want more. And there's a lot she's made from those fleeces over the years. Like many of her generation, Eileen is also a beautiful knitter. Right now, she's working on a beanie for a new baby on the way. Oh, this is my second wheel. I wore one out. <laughs> Lots of miles. Over the years, Eileen has picked up a few tricks to make working with the wool a lot easier. I came it with the dogs came. I had carters and I hated them. They just mucked it all up, I reckon, and it was too hard to spin. A lot of people like carters, but I didn't, so I got a dog comb and I've combed it ever since and I get a much better product. Eileen has neatly filed a comprehensive catalogue of her achievements, both the colours produced on the stove out the back and also the awards won at ag shows near and far. I used to enter in competitions with my spinning and that and I got mentioned and I won a, won a thing in at the Canberra show. It was amazing. And I gave up. I didn't enter into the Omeo show after a while because everybody said, it's no good us entering because Eileen Douglas will win it. Eileen says her knitting speed has slowed down a bit, but that hasn't stopped her from passing on the skill to others. Well, over the years, I have shown quite a few people how to spin. Some of them have got no idea and get really frustrated and don't go any further. Um, My granddaughter from Melbourne brought up a girl only beginning of this year. And she wanted to learn to spin and she didn't have a wheel or anything. So I showed her and she just spun nearly as good as I did. And while she's still happy to jump in the car and visit her nephew's shearing shed scouting for bits and pieces of wool, she thinks she's probably got enough for the moment. But I think I've got enough in the shed to last me for my life. At least two fleeces, most of two fleeces. There's a lot in a fleece. Peter Somerville speaking there with Eileen Douglas. And if you'd like to see Eileen in action, you can head to abc.net.au forward slash rural. Now to finish off on a lovely story this week, a Western Victorian farming family has recently witnessed their ewe give birth to five healthy lambs. The Harrington family from Mount Cole Creek near Ararat says this super mum is only two years old and has now birthed a total of seven lambs over the past two seasons. I spoke with an excited Paul Harrington about just how it happened. 
when we're lambing, we have a 28-day lambing, and I do lamb runs all day, every day, just to make sure they're no use in distress. And I was coming past me uh, mob of one-and-a-half two-year-olds that were all scanned with triplets in one paddock. And over in the back corner, there was a, a ewe giving birth. I waited there, and there was one, two, three, four, five come out. They all looked healthy, so I left them. The next morning, I went back. And she's up and going and feeding them all, and they're all tacking along behind her. So I thought I'll give her a uh, a day or two. She uh, young you, not two year old. This would be her seventh lamb. Seventh lamb in in two years. In in two years, and the rest of the mob, being the same age group, they'll be on their fifth lamb in two years. So these were scanned triplets and. There's two other mobs with triplets, but they've got different age groups, older again. So they were originally scanned as triplets. Scanned triplets, yeah. So it's not an exact science. I hope your scanner's not listening, but I've got <laughs> like triplets in amongst the twins as well. Is this yeah. the first time this has happened on your property, Paul? This is the first time we've had five. I've, I've got four on board in paddocks this year, and I've got a lot of threes, a lot of twos and the minority is one. It, it just doesn't happen magically. It is a, it's 12 months planning to get good conception rates, and there's a team of about six that get involved in to uh, help all this happen. So before before we go into that, you said the minority with your lambing is, is one baby lamb. That seems quite different to, to many farms. Yeah, I think over the over, we have two, two lots of lambs, so over the first lambing now, which doesn't include the ewe lambs, we've got we had scanned 1.83 lambs for every ewe for the first joining. I think we've only had about four percent mortality at the moment. The last ewe lambs that were joined at eight months old, we've got 808 of them that were retained for future breeders. I've scanned at 160 percent. But the, uh, probably the, the team we put together to help this happen is, number one, genetics. Number two, if you're going to have that many lambs on board, you need to feed them. Grow grass, maintain it, and put the correct amount of feed on offer to our sheep. And the second one is uh, Project Platypus. Repairing fencing, wildlife corridors, and shelter belts. That's been instrumental to lamb survival. We need all sheep need shelter and shade, and this year again we're putting another six thousand trees into the landscape just on this farm here. During the lambing process, I I live with them. I go from daylight to dark, and a lot of times out with a spotlight. If I can see you that's trying to uh, or is thinking about lambing. Uh, before uh, dusk, I'll go out and make sure that she's not in distress and uh, everything's turned out all right for her. But as I say, it comes down to probably those five or six things and, and there's a magical thing in there that a lot of farmers seem to miss too uh, with their sheep. And what's and that? Feed the bloody things. <laughs> I think the bottom line is every year, the higher conception rates and the higher land survival is always good for you, and we're having an average season here. And I'd say uh, the landscape has changed in the last 30 years with the uh, 
the Land Care Network, CMA and Project Platypus, and I would say with our in the last 20 years, our rainfall's halved, but our production has doubled with with the with the team that we have helping us. And that was farmer Paul Harrington. And to see footage of these new lambs, you can head to ABC's Landline Facebook page. And that's all for this week's episode of Countrywide. You can hear all of these stories and more online at abc.net.au forward slash rural. And you can listen back to this Countrywide podcast on the ABC Listen app. I'm Eden Henninen. Have a great week. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up and sun down, so... Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. They're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. Let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio.